Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this wonderful episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 27 and 28 from 1979. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss the Trek Report, including the latest news about the widescreen motion picture. Joseph Peter reflects on the model-making skills of Jim Dow and his contributions to Trek. Bob Vossler considers the Susan Sackett Penn Star Trek Report. Plus, Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time. What Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek have in common. Don Post Studios Masks and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, cutie pie. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of StarPod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app... Make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. ShadowCon, January 7th and 8th in Memphis, Tennessee. It's an SCA convention that is the Society of Creative Anachronism convention. So it has sword fighting, jousting, things like that in an indoor arena. Plus, it has some really cool Star Trek and sci-fi things, especially in the dealer's room and in the gaming room. We had a lot of fun there. They've got, um, like the sword fighting is something unusual that other cons don't have. Plus, they still have all the panels. And they have a great auction where they um, raise money for the con. For You know, each each auction is to raise money for next year's con. And that in itself is a lot of fun. You never know what you're going to see. And when you're in Memphis, you can visit Graceland. We know that Elvis was a huge Star Trek fan. Starlog Magazine, issue number 27, October 1979. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Future Life offers Dune, Mars, and Star Trek. This is actually a promotion for Starlog Sister Magazine, Future Life Magazine, saying that issue number 14 is going to have... A major Star Trek motion picture focus. Now, Future Life magazine deals with more so real-world science, and it piggybacks science fiction and fandom on top of that. But because of this centric issue uh, that's going to focus heavily on Star Trek, we're actually going to include one of the articles in there on the on a future episode. What do you think about Future Life getting excited about Star Trek the motion picture as well? Well, because they were into science, they were into to Star Trek and science fiction. I thought I thought it was a great crossover to to do that in there, and and because so many people were excited about the motion picture, of course it was about selling issues too. But I mean, but it really was something we were interested in. Yeah, and so we look forward to commentators regarding that focus on Starlog Publications, that is Future Life Magazine. 
Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. Welcome to our take on Starlog issue 27 from October 1979, and this is the Star Trek Report. Before we dive into the report, Kelly, I just got to say, I took a look at, you know, a few other things. I can't help myself when I do these. I know. Right? It is, isn't it fascinating to look at these old Starlog issues? Yes, it's incredible. So here's what got my attention this time. I'm I'm such a kid. I'm such a nerd. On the inside cover of this issue is an ad to get readers to buy hand-painted color animation cells from Star Trek the Animated Series. Yes. Holy cow. And they're only 15 bucks. I know. I saw that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I would have killed to get one of those. If you're listening to this and you're not familiar with how this used to work, the ad said, hey, go to page 66 and see our order form. You go to the order form. It's meant for you to cut it out with scissors, fill it out with a pen, write in your address, enclose a check, put it in the mail in an envelope with a stamp and send that bad boy off. And then wait probably six to eight weeks. If you're lucky. If you're lucky for the order to be processed. But come on. Animation cells from the from the animated series, some of them are beautiful. I know. I know. And, and not only Star Trek, even though that's what I would have gone for, but they even have Batman cartoon. I saw and, that. And Archie and, and Tarzan and others and it's just like where was i i i mean i know where i was right why didn't i get these why didn't i get these why didn't i bug my parents up one side down another to get at least one of these there's some beautiful shots of the enterprise you know coming out of what you know i don't know what sector of space they're in but some kind of reddish looking yeah it's like a time warp it says Oh, you're right. It is. And there's like two Enterprises there. So it's obviously moving through the time warp, which is really cool. Or the Enterprise from the opening scene of the anime show that has Star Trek at the bottom. Oh, yes. I love that. The one I thought was pretty cool was uh, the Enterprise and a Klingon battlecruiser. Yes. That was really cool. So, yeah. Anyway, this has nothing to do with the Star Trek report. (laughs) Thanks for letting us talk with you about animation cells. They were really cool. Yeah. Now well, on to this issues. Well, Star so there's another people. big one in this episode, or this episode, this issue, I thought was Battlestar Galactica episode guide. Oh, I looked at that too. And I would just, so I made Bob wait for me. Um, as I'm just casually reading these uh, <laughs> Starlog magazines, and I'm just like, "Oh, yeah, that is. Oh, that it or that episode. I remember that episode." And just going through this thing, geeking out, and so sorry, Bob, I was late because all good. It, it's so fun to, um, it's so fun to to look at stuff like that and remember, you know, there was no internet, and so unless you actively sat down. And wrote down the plots to every episode you ever watched. You had no idea. Right. Um, you know, and that's what Starlock did so well was create and, and supply these episode guides 
for you know for some of these great series. So that's um, that's really good stuff. Yeah. I right. I just love this magazine. I wish I could get an entire complete collection and just pour over it. Because also in the um, <laughs> the good people over at Star Pod Log are going to get sick of us because we never really get to the Star Trek reports. <laughs> There's a great Enterprise pendant in the back for four ninety five plus shipping. That's really cool. It might cost a little bit more now, Bob. It it might cost a little bit now. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to the report. Oh, please. Yes. Uh, again, written by Susan Sackett, Gene Roddenberry's uh, longtime assistant. Um, the article has a photo from Journey to Babel showing actor Mark Leonard as Spock's father, Sarek. And uh, it's entitled, the article is entitled, Filming the Klingons' Destruction. Well, so then we were talking before we started fil- or recording, and there's a whole different tone from Susan in in this article seems much more relaxed um seems like she's got some time just to to be creative to to get into you know a little bit of an her artistic take on what's going on and she starts off describing in uh well very detailed account of the new klingons and remember these are new klingons they're not the Klingons from the original series. These are Klingons with, you know, a head bone thing. I don't know what they're called. Um, you know, on their forehead, they you know, have the darker complexion. They look like vicious animals, essentially. Uh, and the bridge of the Klingon vessel, she describes in great detail. And, and it sounds just like you know, an, a cluttered mess. It's dirty. It's got, you know, smoke rising up in the corners. It's dark and dreary. Uh, and as what uh, Doug Trumbull described it as, it's like a Japanese submarine in World War Two that's been out at sea too long. I, I liked that comparison. I thought that was really good. Of the Klingons, Susan writes... Quote, they are so deliciously malevolent, <laughs> yes. so tantalizingly terrifying as to be irresistible, unquote. Very nice wordplay there, Susan. I like <laughs> that is. a lot. She um, she later on saw them in the Paramount Commissary. And upon seeing them, she writes, quote, they look like Lodge Brothers, initiates in some strange sort of coven, unquote. Nice use of language. Yes, very colorful. Go ahead, Kel. Um, so then she she's talking about in this commissary, she is greeted by one of them, and the Klingon says, hello, Susan. Well, you know, understand, there's all this makeup on them. She can't tell who's who. And then the person speaks up under all this makeup and says, uh, or... She, she, I think she recognizes the voice, right? And she goes, Mark, it's Mark Leonard. Oh, no, he said it's Mark, Mark Leonard, the Klingon captain um, on, you know, on the ship. And former, she's former Sarek. Former Sarek, former Romulan. Romulan commander, right. Yes. 
and so she sat down and, and, you know, spent some time with him in the commissary. They had a little gach together. Yeah, a little gach. I don't know. Here, let me clean off the screen. I know, right? I got it all over my mic, too. That was nice. Yes. Go so ahead. that was that was yeah. kind of a fun description that it she was. had. And yeah, again, I... this is why probably Mark Leonard's picture is at the top of this article. Yes, at, you know, as Sarek to you know basically, you know, make that tie together. But also, I don't know about you, I I keep forgetting he was a Klingon in this movie. Yeah, and I think um, for some time. Mark Leonard held the record for playing the most aliens on Star Trek. I think that has since gone by the wayside, but, um, you know, this is the early days of Trek. Early days. Yeah. Susan went on to recount um, then the first scene of the movie that sees three Klingon ships and their crews killed by, well, she doesn't tell us by what. Of course, you know, here in 2021, we know who it is. It's V'ger. The Klingon scenes took three days to shoot, and they have, um, she continues on. They have all left the production uh, stages. And Susan writes, quote, I keep looking in the corners of stage 12, hoping one of them might still be lurking, but sadly, they are all gone, unquote. Susan digs the Klingons. He really digs the Klingons. But this is a... This is kind of cool. Here's another thing she notes, right? She, she then kind of shifts gear to talk about production on the set for the Epsilon 9 station. And if you'll remember, that's the station that V'ger attacks and the Enterprise is monitoring that signal on the rec deck with the whole crew there. And um, there on the set is actor David Gautreaux. He's the commander. And if you remember, we've talked about this in the past, David was first cast in the role Zahn for Star Trek Phase 2. And they didn't have Nimoy for a Vulcan. Exactly, exactly. So Gotro sort of gets a consolation prize. He gets this cameo in the movie, but it's cool. At least he's there. Yeah. And he died after Mark Leonard. Right, exactly. Because the Klingons bit it first. The Klingons (laughs) bite the dust first. That's right. And Epsilon 9, which is on the edge of Klingon space, bites it next. Exactly. (laughs) Now, the female officer who is relaying the information, that actress is Michelle Amin Billy. Now, I have to admit, when I saw the film for the first time, I thought she was kind of cute. Yeah. Now, she was actually... A, the screenwriter, Harold Livingston's secretary, and got this small part on the motion picture as well. But here's the most interesting part. While working on the film, she met associate producer John Polville. Polville had been with the Star Trek offices going back to the days of um, In Thy Image. And, yeah. uh, you know, those really early days working as an assistant underneath Gene Roddenberry. Billy and Poville got married. How about that? That is cool. They made him a love connection working on the motion picture. 
Maybe they met on dating game. Um, oh, no, on the, maybe they had their own dating game on the set of the motion picture. Maybe. <laughs> Star Trek style. Love, so Star, I, love Star Trek style. Sorry, go ahead. You were going to say. So I like how Susan's talking about the Epsilon 9 set, which is on the same stage as the Klingon um, bridge. And just that, that contrast between the two where, again, the, the bridge of the Klingon ship is dirty and smoky and whatever. And and Epsilon 9, it's crisp and clean. It's, you know, right. polished and and nice. So Right, right. She also uh, brought out a little piece, too, as she's in the... Um on that Epsilon nine set. And she's talking about how clean and, and beautiful it is. And then she sees some names scribbled in above a console. Somebody grab a pen and wrote their names. Yeah. It was a duty roster. I think she said it was. Well, it actually ends up being the names of Mike Miner, Lee Cole and Richard McKenzie, who were members of the star Trek art department who had designed yes, probably a lot of the sets. And, and we know Mike Miner helped design the refitted Enterprise. So she gave us a little puzzle, though, too. She did. R.D. So, Enberry. Right. And Gort. Gort, I know. Do you know Enberry? I don't. I don't either. Do you, you know Gort? No, I don't. Gort is the robot from The Day the Earth Stood Still. That's right. Which was a Robert Wise film, I think, from 1951. Yes, that's right. Now, R.D. Enberry, I searched it online. I couldn't find anything. So if anybody's listening and they know who R.D. Enberry is, boy, we'd love to know. Yeah, yeah. Let let, let us the, know. Let the good folks at Starpod log know. Right. That's good stuff, though. I love stuff it like is. that. That's uh, yeah, the little Easter eggs. Yep. And you wouldn't be able to see that anywhere on the movie. Right. You had to be literally right up on it. Yep. Yep, I agree. Susan also comments that the uh, Epsilon 9 scenes were the last to be shot at Paramount. So right. essentially production ended on that day. What... Um, what do you have for closing thoughts here, Cal? Um, so, you know, she she did end with just a basic update on the rest of the production here. And um, I just thought it was funny that, you know, it, she had to give a status update on, on Jean, who had been attacked by a brown recluse spider. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that sounded horrible. And and he still, you know, uh, marshaled on and did did everything, even though he had a 106 degree temperature. And then uh, and then Persis had stopped by because she was done shooting and her hair was back. <laughs> she she is so Susan has a thing for Persis's hair. Y yes, like it's the second time in the article, isn't it, that she mentioned it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so there you go. There are my closing thoughts. I, I like these. These are much more relaxed Susan articles. Yeah, it, it. I get the impression that the prior 
Star Trek reports that she wrote during the motion pictures production were a lot more hurried as if she needed to just get it done and throw things in there and then move on to other tasks. And that makes sense, right? Because I'm sure the production offices were crazy busy in the months leading up to production and during production. So now she's got more time to have some fun and be playful. Right. Right. So, and it's fun. Exactly. Yeah. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, We are in the information age. So much so that it doesn't matter if you live in New York or Birmingham or San Francisco or wherever you are. You're part of this exciting kaleidoscope. Starpod Trek. Celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hi, I'm Joseph Peta of Star Trek Nature's Hunger, the model makers of Magic Cam. The article talks about who made the models, what models were needed, how the models were made, and the challenge for making models for movies. And with that said, let's take a deep plunge into the magic world of model making for Star Trek, the motion picture. So who made all these fantastic and wonderfully made models? It was a small team of dedicated, talented, and experienced professionals that made these incredible models. In Hollywood, it was really a small family. Back in 1979, there were only a handful of people that Hollywood could call upon to perform this very delicate task. Model-making greats such as Douglas Trumbell, John Discra, Wayne Smith, David Gerbil, just to name a few. And they even had their fantastic modeling studios from which to work from. So what kind of models were needed for Star Trek The Motion Picture? First, there was the dry dock. Then, of course, the Enterprise. Then the orbiting space office complex. And, of course, V'ger itself. These models had to be of large scale and highly detailed enough for Hollywood movie cameras to capture. Models made for regularly shown TV shows simply would not do. So how were the models made? First, dedicated teams worked from highly detailed designs and blueprints. Teams were assembled with specific tasks in mind. A variety of materials were used in their production. Heat-resistant plastics, transparent plastics, vacuum-formed material, and neon lighting, and tons and tons of electrical cord. No incandescent lighting. And, of course, lots of patience and time. Because if it wasn't done right, the model had to be done again. Making models for Star Trek The Motion Picture was not a cakewalk. There were major model-making challenges and obstacles to overcome. First, the model-making concept changed from a TV series, Phase 2, to a full-length motion picture. Then there was a change in model-building leadership. The task moved from one model company to another. Movie models had to be larger and more detailed to show on the silver screen. 
That meant that previously made models for the TV series had to be totally scrapped and thrown out. Then there was a problem with the movie script. It wasn't finished. Then original designs given to the model team lacked much detail. They were incomplete, which meant that the model team had to come up with their own designs to fill in the gap. And most important of all, the miniature models were very expensive to make, costing as much as a quarter of a million dollars. But that's because more details were required and more resources were required. And there was a change in concept that had to be in consideration so that the model went hand in hand with the script. And yet, in spite of all these challenges and obstacles, the models were finished on time. A true happy ending for eagerly waiting fans. Models require physical camera movement or internal motors inside the model for movement, while CGI relies on computer animation for movement. Models require electrical wiring and miniature lights to create lighting, while CGI requires digital brightness and intensity to create the illusion of light. In conclusion, the article's a good smooth read, something to sink your teeth into with plenty of illustrated model photos. I'm Joseph Pater from Star Trek Nature's Hunger, and you're invited to see our many fan films. Look up our films on YouTube or catch up on our latest productions on Facebook. Both sides are listed as Star Trek Nature's Hunger. Join us for the journey, if you dare. Mego presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mego figures. Commander Spock, Vulcan Science Officer. 14-inch Mego figures. The Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. Nicholas Meyer, putting finishing touches on Time After Time. So previously in Starlog magazine, there was an interview with Star Trek The Motion Picture director Robert Weiss. And in this issue, we're having an interview with Nicholas Meyer, the director of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. But at this point, do we know he's going to be the director for the next Star Trek movie? No, we don't know what yet. This is 1979. <laughs> this is an interview with the director about his latest movie, Time After Time. I have to say, if you are a Star Trek fan, hunt down this movie. It is worth watching, and you will get some background into some of the source material of what he used for future Star Trek productions. Remember, he was involved in Star Trek two, four, and six. Yeah, the the Eva movies, so the good movies, <laughs> as they're usually known. Well, let's talk about his background. Nicholas Meyer wrote a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes called The 7% Solution. Yes. He's a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and of that era. So, And oftentimes you'll see fandom now crossing over science fiction with the Victorian era, which is... Steampunk. And so steampunk fans... Love these movies. This one, the time after time, follows the adventures of H.G. Wells using his time machine, 
traveling forward in the future in San Francisco to hunt down Jack the Ripper. And and it was a great plot and a great idea. And H.G. Wells was really a good character in that movie, the way he was um, so focused on what he was doing, but also had a heart, as you'll see in the movie, a very lovable, likable character. And if we were to say this plot synopsis to a Star Trek fan, name a movie where time travel is used to go to San Francisco. Star Trek Four. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you do see how this movie is similar to Star Trek Four when you're watching it. And we don't want to ruin it for you, but there was a deleted scene of the movie that is very reminiscent to a scene that is monumental in Star Trek Four. So Nicholas Myers was taking elements of movies that he has used, ideas that he has used in the past, and sprinkling them in his Star Trek productions. I mean, what's one of the things that Spock said that one of his forefathers referred to? Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes saying, once you have eliminated the impossible, what remains must be, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That's it. I mean, that's Nicholas Myers right there. <laughs> <laughs> and we're seeing this article focuses in on not only his love for Sherlock Holmes, but his love for working with time travel. And he made sure that this movie was not like the George Powell movie, The Time Machine. He wanted to be relevant. He wanted to be – you could somewhat believe it when you were, when you were watching the movie, especially the banter of someone that was out of time – trying to get around in modern-day San Francisco. I love how he updated it. That not the, I mean, the time machine looked the same, but the character of H.G. Wells acted different. He he, he was a little more, he, I think he was more like he actually fit in with the time in this one. It, you know, naturally fit in a little bit better, even though he still had a few things to work through. But I think that's the, the parallel between Star Trek Four and Time After Time, is watching... Those who are out of time trying to acclimate, how to exchange money, how to yeah. purchase things, how to communicate with others. You watch this and say, how as a Star Trek fan was I not aware of this movie and to see what Nicholas Meyer inserted into his Star Trek productions later on? Yeah, as a Star Trek fan, I, I would say you definitely have to see this movie. And and I mean, even on its own, it, it was a good movie, but... But picking up the little, the little things that remind you of Star Trek, that was so cool, too. Cindy Lauper was a fan. She even named a song after this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Howdy-do, crew. This is Moxie Ann Magnus. Whenever I feel like hearing about Star Trek, I listen to Star Pod Trek. So we have to talk about the last convention that we attended was Starbase Indy, Thanksgiving weekend. It's always in Indianapolis. It's always great to see our friends there. Yeah, so we just got back, and uh, so we ran into a lot of people we know and met some new friends. And we, we did a panel like we've been doing there every year. So this time we did a panel on Vulcan culture. Very well attended. And we had, yeah, a good discussion. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the audience uh, participated, and it, w- and it was nice to have the back and forth there. Dealer's room. I always walk away with something in the dealer's room. And this year, no exception. You always find some some treasures there, and they combine the dealer's room with fan tables, which I very much enjoy. Fan tables are a staple of, of conventions that if a convention doesn't have fan tables, sometimes there's almost a letdown. 
because that's one of the fun things about going to conventions is meeting other fan groups and reuniting with those groups that we are already part of. And so Starfleet Command had a table, and, and we sat there and, and talked to people a while because it was a lot of people that we know since we're in that group. That's right. And Starfleet Command actually had their own separate room from the convention, which was fantastic. Big video screen for the award ceremony. They had it tied in uh, via Zoom. And uh, the Klingon Assault Group was there. I mean, they're, they're always there, too. And they did their room party that they have every year. Yeah, yeah. Great interaction there. Actually, the Thaw Admiral, Chris, was there, as he is every year. And someone presented him a bottle of the Klingon blood wine that's available. And we just found this out, is that he did the translations for the bottle. And if you look at the cork, there's going to be scripting Klingon. And he did the translation there as well. And there's a whole series of corks that you could collect. And they all have different Klingon phrases. So it was it's neat to be around fans who are interactive with the real world Star Trek as well. Members of the Klingon Language Institute were at that party. I mean, it's just amazing that fandom has thrived in star trek that much where, where there's an official language and members meet on an annual basis and we and i attended a, like several panels there was a panel on women in star trek that was given by our friend ann burton and she's she, always amazing yeah she she did a slideshow and it was a lot of fun and um there was the and tracy lee coco was there again i think she's trying to take the crown from marina Sirtis of how many star trek conventions that you could attend because she is everywhere, it seems. Yeah, and Tracy's a lot of fun, and she she knows us. I mean, we're friends with her, so she always has to give us a big hug when we see her at cons. Yeah, she's great. And and there were a lot of great costumes there. there were, we saw a lot of, and of course the Klingons, but a lot of Romulans, and um, and there was a Horta, and the, so a lot of cool stuff there, too. No doubt about it, because we're able to meet up with friends of the Phantom Battalion, which... We see them probably once a year, maybe twice a year at conventions, and we look forward to meeting up with them in Star Trek Chicago in 2022. Yeah, they're a great group of people. They just, you know, it's, it's just a fan group. We just go to a lot of cons together. They're really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's what Star Trek fandom's all about. Each shuttle orbiter is designed to be used at least 100 times. The space shuttle fleet will handle a variety of missions. Placing, servicing, or recovering satellites in orbit. Delivering deep space probes for on-orbit launch. Carrying space laboratories. NASA's space transportation system will replace nearly all expendable launch vehicles for both civilian and military space missions. With the shuttle orbiters, we're entering a new era in space. Starlog Magazine, issue number 28. Cover date, November 1979. Welcome, everyone. It's Bob Vossler, Starfleet member, Admiral. I am a Vice Regional Coordinator of Starfleet Region 7 and have been for, I think we're going on our 13th year now, but I've previously been the RC. The longtime CEO of the USS Challenger, which uh, began its uh, journey in fandom in 1988 and uh, continues to this day. So um, 
Looking forward to talking to you folks about Starlog Issue 28 and Susan Sackett's Star Trek report, which um, is very well written. She, um, well, they always are, but she is talking in this installment about the viewing of, of, the, of a rough cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And you can just tell from the way she's writing how excited she is in seeing the rough cut, which uh, has no music, no special effects, no opening or closing uh, credits, uh, but has all the dialogue. And she is just thrilled having, you know, knowing these people and having worked with them um, in seeing the formation. You know, uh, she's been reporting for months now on, uh, you know, from its infancy in production to where it is right now. And uh, she's getting to actually see the rough cut and get a glimpse of what will be the magic of Star Trek, the motion picture, which while I know many of us feel was uh, a little lacking in some areas, was the movie that really invigorated the franchise uh, and added so much more depth to what we would be getting in the future and pointed out things that now we take for granted, and I'll, I'll go through that. One she mentions in her article about the funny lines that Chekhov has, and um, and that's something we would see in later films. We would see that in, um, of course, we would see the obligatory Chekhov gets uh, injured, uh, be it uh, in Star Trek uh, Four or uh, Star Trek Two, uh, where he looked like he was wearing a bra on his ear when he came to the bridge. Um, but uh, Chekhov does have some very funny lines, and uh, and that side of that kind of came out early on in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and, and she notes that. Uh, she also mentions about the uh, matte paintings used in the se- sequences early on in the film with Spock on Vulcan going through the Colonnar, and uh, that was definitely a scene that we all took immediate attention to. Uh, we saw. Spock with long hair, wearing a ceremonial gown. Uh, it was a very powerful scene. And although I know some people will mention that, uh, oh, it showed uh, two moons in the distance and Vulcan's not supposed to have moons, you know, from reference, I guess, in, in, a, in, in a muck time. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, I think that's been explained away as those were just, I don't know, asteroids or, or something further out from their orbit. Who knows? It didn't spoil anything and uh, was a powerful scene that uh, got us riveted very early on in seeing Spock. So I, I think that was an important scene, and obviously Susan felt that, that as well. Uh, she had brought up that there was some rumors that were never actually true that some of the Vulcan sequences were going to be cut from the film. And uh, thank God it wasn't, because I think those were crucial scenes. Now, I think we would all agree that we could edit down some of the fantastic viewing of the newly uh, refurbished and redone Enterprise, as as powerful as that was the first time I watched it, uh, I, I, I still think that's probably just a tad lengthy uh, and would actually have more punch if it had been edited down a bit. Uh, but the music and everything flows so well, um, it's almost impossible to think of what it would be like had it been edited down. I don't think they did that even when ABC 
uh, aired it on television. I don't think they, they reduced that scene down. Um, but uh, she had mentioned the use of the matte paintings and how effective they were. And um, the fact that the Vulcan scenes, thankfully, were not cut. I don't know why they would even consider doing that. Um, you know, there might have been more footage that we didn't see. But it doesn't suggest that, that anything was cut from that. Uh, it seemed to have its place in in the flow of the movie. It also brings up something that we didn't necessarily, you know, looking back, we, we almost forget about. Is, you know, since we're seeing the new Klingons with the bump heads and makeup for the first time in, in their uniforms and a, and a more heavily armored Klingon D9... Uh, vessel, um, pretty much the same ship, except it's got more detail and, and would, would appear to have more armor, um, that we're hearing for the first time the Klingon language, uh, and, and it, that is being developed, which I believe uh, James Dewan had, had a lot to do with, with the sound. And of course, we're seeing Mark Leonard, who... Uh, you know, to this day, I, I, you know, I look at that Klingon uh, makeup, and and you just cannot make out that that was Mark Leonard. You know, so uh, I, I'm I'm glad he had his role in that film, even though we got to see only a few seconds of him, maybe a few minutes at most. But uh, it was impressive. It was it was definitely like, wow, these are Klingons. They could have introduced any race that was near where V'ger was approaching, but. Uh, but I think it was Gene's wish to finally bring the Klingons the way he wanted to see the Klingons, not just the TV versions with the, uh, in, in some cases, uh, the darkened skin makeup uh, like Michael and Sarah had, um, or the more human-looking, you know, uh, William Campbell was uh, didn't have that makeup, Um where John Jonathan Colicos had, I don't know where the decision is made in the in the makeup process for the, you know, how they decided to go about determining how they were going to make each Klingon look like in the original series. But in the movie, clearly this opened up a whole new ball game. We we would get to see subsequently uh, Klingons in, you know, definitely we would we would get to see them again in. Star Trek Three, uh, and uh, with Krug, but uh, this was a nice, nice uh, first look and and a first listen to the Klingon language. And I think doing it that way with subtitles, which is another first for Star Trek, we've never, you know, there was no subtitles in in any episode of Star Trek. Um, we got to you know, it, it added to the feel. Of the of the film that this is not you know these aren't Terrans this they could have just as easily just had them speak English but it was kind of fun to hear them speak their own language and have it in in subtitles uh, sometimes that's a, a very effective way of of presenting atmosphere ironically it also goes in the the Susan's article also goes into talking about the soundtrack album, which is forthcoming, and that they had inked a deal with, of all places, CBS Records. Now, remember, this is long before CBS and Paramount had 
made their arrangement uh, and, and took possession of, of Star Trek. Uh, it was a Paramount production, uh, and at uh, around that time, Paramount, a lot of Paramount was, was primarily um, owned by ABC, or ABC utilized a lot of Paramount properties. So that's why we would often see Indiana Jones movies on ABC, and we would see um, Star Trek on ABC. So it's, it's funny to see how things change. But uh, CBS Records handled the wonderful soundtrack, which, you know, I had on vinyl. I'm sure many of you out there, older fans, did, and just played it constantly. And even used, borrowed, I should say, um, one, one, uh, one suite of it for a college project I had in promoting the college that I, I attended. And it worked so well. And, and I think my professor knew it's like, eh, this sounds like it's from Star Trek. And, uh, but it, but it works. So, um, that music is just wonderful. It, it stands out among the many soundtrack albums. Uh, and I think I pointed this out before in a prior, uh, podcast, uh, here or somewhere else, how the sleeve on that album featured all the alien races that were introduced into Star Trek The Motion Picture, although we, 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 we just got a glimpse of the Kazerites, the Amandarites, the uh, Saurians. The, there, was, there was so many that had their native attire, their ceremonial robes, their feathers, their, all, all of that. And only in this album sleeve did you get to see all this. Um, and I was excited about this because at that time... I was collecting the Mego action figures. And, of course, there were certain Mego action figures that, while they were on the box, uh, the three and three-fourth inch figures, you couldn't buy. And that included the Klingon. That included the Saurian. That included, you know, the Megarite and the Arcturian. I, I, you know, eventually I was able to get some of those at a hefty price at a convention. But these showed you what they looked like. And... Uh, were in individual scenic boxes. So it was an interesting choice to have that on the sleeve, I thought. And it's one of my fondest memories. I found it to be a good article, as as all of Susan Sackett's works were, uh, her reports were, rather. And, um, you know, it, it, it once again brings back nostalgia of a mega fan who is seeing a rough cut of a film. Now... Even though it's, I, I don't know if I'd want to see it in a rough cut form myself. Um, I'd want to see it completed. But I guess on the other hand, I'd be so dying to see something that I know I'd want to, I'd probably end up watching it anyway if I was, you know, given a package that says, yeah, you don't have to watch this, but, you know, if you want to see a rough cut. Uh, and then, you know, holy spoiler, Batman, you know, seeing the film and then, then seeing all the extra jazz thrown in, the music, the special effects, sound effects, all of that, credits, um, you know, that, that would be interesting. I don't know how I would, I don't know if I'd be, uh, overly tempted to, 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 you know, succumb to temptation and, and watch it in the rough cut form, or if I just, um, wait and see it all complete. 
Um, I don't know what you folks would do. Don Post Studios, the second generation. From Frankenstein to Darth Vader and the Facehugger. All right, when Star Trek fans think about Don Post Studios, what's the first thing that we think of? The William Shatner mask. That's one of those things that if you look for an original Don Post Studios William Shatner mask or Captain Kirk mask, it will blow your mind how expensive they are. That has become something that is so in demand, not even so much by Star Trek fans, but by horror film fans. Because it's the basis of the Michael Myers mask. That Halloween movie exploded. One of the reasons why why it did is because of the fact that that mask that's being used is so eerie in the movie. And in fact, it wasn't made for the production. It's an off-the-shelf Don Post mask. Well, the thing is, and the story about, about where the mask came from, that's only been uh, known for for the last few years. It's not like people knew it back then when the movie came out. No, it was well what they do is they took for the for those who don't know, Don Post Studios is a studio that makes costume masks for the general public. So if you're a fan, especially a famous monster the film in a magazine, that that's the first time I ever saw them, there would be ads for all different masks and mostly horror masks. So you had Frankenstein, Wolfman, and then just general things. I remember as a kid looking at this mask that was a cobra's head. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, gruesome things, uh, old people. That that was a thing back in the day. I want to get a mask to look like an old man. Like, <laughs> but but we think about uh, the history of Don Post Studios and how his son Don Post Junior took over things. You realize that. It's a studio of craftsmanship, of quality, that even before they were doing things that were mass market related to intellectual properties like Star Wars and Star Trek, these are the ones that wanted to do things that were very unique for the horror collector, the sci-fi collector, and what became people who collect masks and helmets. In fact, Don Post Sr., was one of the ones who worked on the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And he was disappointed when he saw the movie because it was so dark. Because this artist put so much time and detail into the pods that the audience couldn't see his work. Oh yeah, I would have been disappointed too. Now, Even though Don Post Sr. worked on major motion pictures, he did have a studio creating these masks. And that's where most fans know his work from. Yeah, mostly he he makes these masks um, for the fans to buy, not as much for the movies. Yes. Uh, I mean, the first Don Post Studios mask I ever bought was the Darth Vader helmet. and Which he said was a, a big seller. A huge seller. I, I, I remember seeing it in, in magazines saying, I want this so bad. I want this so bad. And by the time I was... I had a paper route, I was able to buy it. Because my parents, once I had a, a job, a real job... As a paper boy, I was making $30 a week. So that was huge money. I had to save half, spend half. So I actually had $15 a week to sit, to spend, uh, that wouldn't go in my bank account. But even that $15 I would save. And I bought, saved up and bought the Darth Vader mask, the two piece helmet. Looking at the quality of these Don Post masks was amazing. Their first property that they got the license for were Universal Monsters, which made sense. The first one was Frankenstein the 1931 version, and they realized that, yes, people did enjoy the unique creations that they were producing, 
But the real money was in things that people knew. And so it took some time, but they got the Star Trek license as well with a mask of Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk, which to me makes zero sense. Because their faces aren't as, as unique. They're not like monster no, faces. No, because they didn't make a, a Mugato. They made a Gorn. I mean, that is things that make sense to me. But just a human's face? Come on. <laughs> so the story with the Halloween mask is that the producers just sent someone out to buy a mask, just to buy a general mask to put on the character. The guy picked up a Captain Kirk mask because he thought it looked weird and creepy. And if you look at the ca- <laughs> really? Cap- okay. if you look at the Captain Kirk mask, if he if the marketing didn't have him wear the golden tunic, I don't think I'd know it was Captain Kirk. Yeah. Some, so what yeah. they did was to make it extra eerie. Is they cut the eye holes out, they painted it pale, and then they added hair to it. So they changed it up a bit. They did yeah. make some modifications, but it's one of those things that you have to look hard. I mean, when I first saw Halloween, I didn't know it was a Captain Kirk Don Post Studios mask. Did you? Would you notice it right off the bat? I would not have known. I mean, the studio went on to make more things like the facehugger mask from Alien, which is ingenious when you think about it. Yeah, that's – like it was such a brilliant idea, and it was something that's so memorable from the movie. So, of course, it's going to – like the mask is going to sell. Yeah. But when it came down to the Star Trek mask, I did think that was a strange decision to make the Kirk and Spock masks. But – the Kirk mask to this day is one of the most sought-after Don Post Studio masks because it's the hardest to find. And why do you think it's one of the more harder ones to find of the ones that were mass-produced? Because so many people modified them that there, there's less of the originals around. Exactly. And to this day, there are people that go to Star Trek conventions, meet William Shatner, and ask him to autograph their Don Post Studio mask. And he finds it amusing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's close up by picking an advertisement in Starlog and discussing it. This one is from Paul M. Newitt, Starfleet Division, Davis, California. It's a classified ad saying, Dazzling lights for your Starship Enterprise. Warp drive, running lights, homing beacon, dome lights, lighted ports. For for information, just write to this address. This is the type of thing that I would have loved as a kid. When I was in my 20s, I started getting into lighting model kits. When I was younger, I didn't have the skill set to do it. But I had the refit Enterprise model. I had the original series model. I would have loved to illuminate it. But I didn't even know that was an option. Your brother was a big model builder. Yeah, my brother did the... um. The, the same one, the the refit Enterprise from TMP, and he had the, the lights in it, uh-huh. and it, it looked great. Man, that must have been cool. Now, do you still have his Ciroc shuttle? Yeah, I have the shuttle. That one was not a light-up model, but yeah, he made he made a Ciroc from the motion picture, and that one was cool, too. So what was the process? Do you recall what it was like him putting lights into it? Do you think that he ordered it from a company like this through the mail? I think he did, yeah. I, I didn't see him putting it together. But, um, yeah, I think he had to order the, the model. Because, I mean, of course we couldn't have found it where, where we lived anyway. Yeah, they didn't make things like this for general consumption. I remember in the 90s, 
they did make the next generation with the lights, and that's the one that I bought off the shelf. So you bought it as as a all in the box one kit. But if you're a mono builder back in the seventies, you had to buy the extra parts to make it look extra awesome. So were the lights interior lights or exterior lights? I I always had the impression they were interior. Even what, though what, I'm not really sure. Well, what parts asked, of the ship? What parts of the ship were illuminated? Um, I remember like on the whole the the ridges of the um of the saucer section the the rim, and the um the secondary hull had a lot of lights. Those are what I remember. Oh, so that would have been interior lights then. Yeah. So he yeah. was super skilled at that. Oh yeah, he was. Well, he he did a lot of models. Yeah, that was one of the Star Trek pastimes for fandom. Back in, in this time period. Herb Jefferson Jr., Lieutenant Boomer, remembers Galactica. So this is an interview with Herb Jefferson Jr. It's interesting that he's an actor that says he grew up loving science fiction and space. In fact, he wanted to be a fighter pilot and used to build model rocket ships when he was a kid. And he loves science fiction novels. So I always think it's cool when someone gets involved in a sci-fi series that they understand the medium to a certain degree. It's always a lot better. I mean, they, they get the lines better. They know all the, like, they can usually speak the, the uh, made-up terminology a lot better. And they understand that we as the viewers appreciate that as well. And especially seeing these people at conventions, they understand what we're going through, that this is serious to us. Yeah, they get the fans a lot better. One of the comments that he makes in this article talks about how Battlestar Galactica only lasted one season. And it's a shame. He has this statement saying, I feel those decisions could have been made and should have been made. And he's referring to the direction and style of the show. So that when we started out, we could have been head and shoulders above Star Trek, the outer limits in anything else that happened before, because technically we were. You've never had special effects like this before in the TV industry. The development should have measured up to that. They should have gone hand in hand. Now, we did make a mention here about Star Trek that we have to think. Battlestar Galactica came out at a time when there was no Star Trek on television, there was no original series, obviously, that ended in 1969. Mm-hmm. It was in repeats. Yeah, it was in repeats. It was on television. But there, were, but there was no current track, you know, no animated series that was currently being aired, and, and there was no Next Generation. That didn't come out till 1987. So for fresh, new science fiction content, we did have Battlestar Galactica. And the curious thing is, yeah, the production values were great. The stories were awesome. Uh, it was just too expensive to keep on air for the amount of viewers that they had. It, for, to make a, a million dollar an episode show, you had to be a number one or two rated show. You couldn't be four or five. He had a background in Star Trek. He knew Star Trek. And when we watch Battlestar Galactica, we see that there are a lot of connections between the show. I mean, let's just think about it. At the time, we didn't know this because we couldn't see foresee into the future but the entire premise that a ship is looking to go home to earth and when we say home because earth was a lost colony what now when we think of a star trek parallel do we think of obviously voyager uh, voyager was about a, a starfleet ship that was lost in in a different part of space that was unexplored 
Of course, of course, to say lost, maybe that's not exactly right. They knew where they were, but it took, it, they said it was going to take 70 years to get home. So it's just the idea of going, but they were trying to get back to, to Federation space. So there is a loose kind of same plot line. They want to get back home. We also know that Star Trek was saved because of a letter writing campaign. A lot of fans don't realize that there was a letter writing campaign in the late 70s to save Battlestar Galactica as well, but it did not have the same effect. It didn't save the show. Also, another strong connection is that Battlestar Galactica was created in the late 60s by Glenn Larson, and his mentor in developing the show was actually Gene Kuhn. Right after Gene Kuhn left Star Trek, he became a mentor to quite a few people who were trying to get their foot into Hollywood, and Glenn Larson was one of them. In fact, Battlestar Galactica series originally was going to be called Adam's Ark, and Gene Kuhn said, well, I don't think that's such a great of a title. Since the focal point is the ship Galactica, let's name the series Galactica. That's interesting that, um, yeah, that Gene Kuhn was an influencer on this. And it was the studios that said, well, Star Wars is popular. You have to work Star somewhere into the title. So that's how Battlestar Galactica came to be, the full title. But also when we think about the show, even though it was one season long, it did have a revival. Very similar to Star Trek. Uh, they had Galactica 1980. That's right. And Star Trek had the animated series and then for live action, The Next Generation. So there was enough fan interest for the studios for both series to try again. And we cannot forget how many actors crossed over into both series. The most obvious is going to be Kor, the Klingon, and, and Baltar, who's both played by... John Colicos. What do you think about his role in both series? Well, I mean, on Star Trek, the original series, he was only on one episode... And, um, he, he was the first Klingon that we got to know. Yeah, yes, he was. So, so, he, but his character on Battlestar Galactica was, was a regular character and he was, you know, of course that, he was very different there. But in both, in both cases he plays the enemy. And he did, he did a great acting job. I mean, you, when you see it on Battlestar Galactica, you definitely be- believe it. You know, he's the only traitor to humans and he actually becomes a leader among the Cylons. Someone who who's that devious the, that he actually um, could convince the Cylons to to let him lead them because he was the one who knew more about humans than they than they did. I think he played the character with great depth and with great um, villainy, as it were. He he was one of those villains that you could believe. No doubt. Now there are a ton of background actors in both series, which is common in Hollywood. If you're a, if you're a non-speaking character in one show, you could be a non-speaking character in a hundred shows or a one with minimal parts to it. But some of the major actors that we see in both series, that is all different versions of Star Trek, going as far as Voyager. Because you got to figure, if Battlestar Galactica was airing in 1977 and 1978, 20 years later, 30 years later, these actors were still acting, such as Sharon Acker who played Odana in the original series, The Mark of Gideon. She played Anne in Battlestar Galactica 1980. Yes, and and she still looked good 10 years later, and it was like she hadn't aged. You knew it immediately. Yeah, I mean, well, she still had, like, like the same hairdo. I mean, her hair was pulled back. 
so her face was still framed the same way. Ed Bagley Jr., who played Henry Starling in the Voyager episodes Future's End, Part 1 and 2. He was also in the Battlestar Galactica episodes Saga of Star Worlds and The War of the Gods. I think he played one of the uh, one of the uh, Viper pilots. He was a background character, and and you barely saw him because the thing I because I recognized his name in the opening credits, and then watching trying to find him in the episode, and he like maybe had one line in one episode. And that's the fun thing is that some of these credits, they're they're as time goes on, we know they're getting deeper and deeper into credits because you remember in the original series. The credits were minimal for the most part. Well, in the original series of, of Star Trek, they, you know, the guest star credits were at the end instead of at the beginning. True, true. Now, here's an uncredited role, which is very curious. The Imperious leader on Balancer Galactica, which was a mask and a robe, we never got to see the actor underneath. But it was actually Dick Durock who played an Elysian guard in Alan of Troyes. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Marge Doucet, who played Kara in Spock's Brain, also played Mildred in Balsar Galactica 1980, The Night the Cylons Landed. Now, here's a deep cut. Paul Fix, who's Dr. Mark Piper in Where No Man Has Gone Before, played Commander Cronus in the Balsar Galactica episode Take the Celestra. Okay. Yeah, he he was in it. I remember I remember seeing his name in the credits too. Yes. Now this is one that we've met at conventions numerous times. Sandy Gimple. We know her as the M one thirteen creature. She played a Talosian. She was actually in the Balasar Galactica episode Saga of the Star World. You never see her mentioned that at conventions. At least I've never noticed that before. No, I don't think so. I guess she well she's probably done so many parts <laughs> she can't remember all of them. John Hoyt. The actor who played Dr. Phil Boyce in The Cage. He was in the BSG episode Baltar's Escape. And John Delancey. We know John Delancey as Q. You know, in the episode Experiment on Terra, we heard his voice, but we never saw his face. Yeah, he was wearing a helmet, and he had, you know, just one or two lines in it. But his voice is so distinctive that we're both like, wait, is that Q? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell it's him, and and then his name will be in the in the final ending credits. Which I actually like it better when you have a lot of actors at the end credits, because then there's no spoilers. Sometimes with Star Trek, unfortunately, there might be someone that is coming up on the screen that you don't want to know it's going to be on the screen yet. Well, that's you, though. <laughs> that's me. <Okay. laughs> I don't like spoilers. I like the excitement of 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 having a character appear. An obvious one that we noted in Battlestar Galactic was the appearance of Arlene Martell. She's iconic as T'Pring in Amok Time. Now, well, she was one that looked completely different on Battlestar Galactica. She looked great, though. Yes, yeah, she did. Well, she was so made up as a Vulcan that when you see her for her natural beauty, you realize how much makeup they put on her. How about George Murdoch? In Next Generation, he played Admiral J.P. Hansen, and he played God in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. He was in numerous Battlestar Galactica episodes as Dr. Selig. Very recognizable. Yeah. Yes, he was. And so he was just the, the good doctor. Mm -hmm. Art, the Supreme Commandant in the Battlestar Galactica episode Experiment in Terra, was played by Nehemiah Persoff, who played Parlor Toth in the Next Generation episode The Mo Most Toys. Yes. And you knew that. 
I, immediately I, I when you saw him. the credits come up. Yeah, I recognize his name. I, I mean, seeing him on Star Trek, you know, he, he was under more makeup. But Brock Peters, we know him as multiple parts in Star Trek. Admiral Cartwright, he played Joseph Sisko. He was also in Balsar Galactica, the episode Murder on the Rising Star. Another great role for him. Yes, and he was very recognizable. No makeup in anything that he's done in either series. How about Logan Ramsey, who played proconsul Claudius Marcus in Bread and Circuses? He was also in Experiment in Terra. We're seeing a theme here in this, this Balsar Galactica episode, Experiment in Terra. A lot of Star Trek crossovers with regards to actors. I mean, that could be a panel in itself at, at a con. Well, well there's a... Uh... Star Trek actors have been on a lot of different TV shows, so you could do a you know a lot of thing about a lot of things about all the other shows they've done. Felix Celia. He's most notorious for being Tweaky in Buck Rogers, but also he was a Telosian in the original series, and he was played Lucifer in a few episodes of Battlestar Galactica. Not all the episodes with Lucifer in it, which is curious. Now Lucifer is the guy that um. That works for the Cylons that was always talking to Baltar. Yes. I, I never got the impression that he was a little guy. Well, you could tell it's an odd uh, way of walking because of the way his head lit up. That it looked like somebody was putting the head on top of their own head and the shoulders mm -hmm. looked fake. So Okay, yeah, the head didn't look like a real head. You could tell that was, so that was a piece of cardboard yeah. or something. <laughs> So Felix must have been holding it above his head, the, the entire apparatus that had Lucifer's head and shoulders on it. So it was. So the character was taller than he is. Way taller. How about Michael Strong, Doctor Roger Corby in What Are Little Girls Made Of? He was in Battlestar Galactica 1980, the original three-part first episode, and you could tell it was him immediately. Even though he, he was older. I mean, he, he was noticeably older. And he had a German accent in yeah, this episode. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and Norman Stewart, the Vulcan Kolinar master in Star Trek The Motion Picture. He was also in Saga of the Star World and War of the Gods episodes, playing a statesman. And we don't want to forget Richard Lynch, who played Arctis Baran in the Next Generation episodes Gambits Part 1 and 2. I mean, he played quite a few characters in Battlestar Galactica. All different ones. Wolf, Xavier, Count Iblis. What did you think, think about seeing him in BSG? I mean, it was great seeing him. Yeah, and, and I kept thinking he looked like Rutger Hauer, but I knew it wasn't that's him. That's right, that's <laughs> right. You didn't mention that. But he has very distinctive features. Yeah, and, well, I mean, he wore more um, makeup on TNG, so he was harder to recognize there, but... But, you know, back back then on Battlestar Galactica, he was younger, and he was a pretty handsome guy. Also, behind the scenes, those who were doing production work and artwork, such as Dan Curie and Andrew Probert, were also involved in both shows. And the curiosity is that when Star Trek The Next Generation came out, they had a child prodigy, that being Wesley Crusher. In Battlestar Galactica 1980... They had a child prodigy, Dr. Z. <laughs> I didn't have as much annoyance for Dr. Z as I did for Wesley Crusher. Yeah, I think Dr. Z was more of a, like, he was a standoffish character. You know, like, they, they go to him for advice or counsel. He, he, he doesn't seem as involved in the inner workings of the ship like Wesley was. Like, Wesley was into everything. Yeah. Hey, guys, can I play cards with you? Hey, guys, <laughs> can I do this with you? Hey, guys, can I? Like, 
Get away from me, kid. Whereas Dr. Z was like, wow, this guy's a super brain. He just Let sits in his chair. Sit in your chair and just <laughs> tell us what we need to do. <laughs> and something that we notice in Battlestar Galactica 1980 is that the first episodes, it's actually a three-parter that was aired as a TV movie. But you see some things that would be repeated later on in Star Trek IV. The Vipers land on Earth in a park and then use a cloaking device to hide the ship. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course it makes you think of Star Trek Four, and and so it, ha- but it happened before that movie, so time travel was involved <laughs> yes, in that episode. Yeah. Star Trek Four, time travel. I I don't hear people talking about it enough, but do you think the producers, Leonard Nimoy even, saw Battlestar Galactica in nineteen eighty and incorporated elements into it? We know Nicholas Meyer loves time travel stories. But this just seems so obvious, especially landing in a park and using a cloaking device to hide ships. Well, well, even the fact that it was two guys, like Kirk and Spock were, that, that run into this woman that, that starts hanging out with them all the time. You know, Good those point. things, too. Good point. Amongst Battlestar Galactica fans, Galactica 1980 is somewhat apocryphal, or some are considering it non-canon. You know what? That was the feeling of Star Trek the Animated Series for years. It, it was. It was because just because it was considered for kids as far as the animated series. Um, for Galactica 1980, it was really, you know, most people didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't think it was up to par with, with the original Battlestar Galactica. So that's why they didn't want to consider it canon. Yeah. Quite a few things that if you're fans of both shows, you'll pick up on them. As a Star Trek fan, if you haven't watched Battlestar Galactica definitely think it's worth watching even if the things that we're mentioning if you're watching it just to see all these star trek connections it's worthwhile but it's a great show in its own right yeah the the whole series battlestar galactica even though it was short-lived it, it's worth watching it was it actually had heart i mean it had good stories and it had um characters that you could love thanks for listening make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our facebook group Live long, and may the Force be with you. Nanu Nanu.